Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jeremy Scahill, one of the founders of The Intercept and the host of The Intercepted podcast. And I'm, I'm really honored to be here today to talk about a, an incredible, devastating, and brilliantly produced podcast uh, that's co-produced by Topic Studios, The Intercept, uh, the Chicago-based journalism nonprofit, The Invisible Institute, as well as iHeartRadio in association with Tenderfoot TV. The podcast is called Somebody, and it's a seven-part series that documents the quest of a woman named Shapiro Wells to investigate and discover what happened to her 22-year-old son, Courtney Copeland, who was uh, found with a bullet in his back or, or ended up with a bullet in his back outside of a Chicago police station in 2016, and he died shortly thereafter. And before I, I bring our guests on for today, I, I just want to say as, a, as an investigative journalist, watching uh, the, the work that Shapiro Wells has done as a mother who is trying to discover who murdered her son and also producing such a vibrant and devastatingly beautiful piece of investigative journalism. I've never seen something like this or witnessed a character quite like Shapiro Wells. And, um, and we're very honored uh, to have her join us on this program right now, as well as Allison Flowers, who is the producer of this for of this podcast uh, with Shapiro and the team at the Invisible Institute. Uh, Shapiro is a mother of six. She is uh, lives in Cicero, Illinois, and she is the vice president of the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation. Uh, Allison, as I said, is an investigative journalist and producer at the Invisible Institute in Chicago. I want to welcome both of you here. Uh, Shapiro, thanks so much for the incredible bravery and and the the it's remarkable journalism that you've done and and you're doing it in the service of trying to find your son's murderer. So thank you so much for being with us, Shapiro. Thank you for having me and thank you for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, I hope everyone listens to this podcast series. Um, you can look it up while we're talking. It's called Somebody. You can find it now wherever you get your podcast. There's seven episodes. You can only listen to five right now, um, but the, the last two are going to be coming out in the coming weeks, and, and you won't want to miss it. Allison Flowers from the Invisible Institute, thank you also for the incredible work that you've done here and that you all continue to do at the Invisible Institute. Thank you, Jeremy. It's good to be here. So before we we get into the uh, to the substance of your investigation and what you report and what you found um, in this investigative podcast. Let's give people a little sense of the story and uh, and watch the trailer for somebody the podcast. My name is Shapiro Wells. This is the story of my son Courtney. You know, my name is Courtney Copeland. 
2015 is the biggest year of my life. He was um, a ladies' man, even with his auntie and his grandmother. I'm Chance the Rapper. Courtney Copeland was a good friend of mine. In 2016, he wound up with a bullet in his back outside a Chicago police station. 2510 Robert. This guy flagged down at Granite Central. A gentleman just said he was shot. And it's the story of my search for the truth. This is Somebody, a co-production of the Invisible Institute, The Intercept, and Topic Studios in association with Tenderfoot TV. Coming March 31st, wherever you get your podcast. This is somebody's child. Somebody deserves to know what happened. I deserve to know what happened to my son. And that's the trailer for Somebody, the podcast. And uh, Shapiro, I want to begin with you. First, share with people uh, a bit about who Courtney was, the kind of person that he was, and 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 what he was doing with his uh, with his life before he was murdered. Well, thank you so much for that, Jeremy. I must say that Courtney was probably the life of everybody's party. He was so much fun and energetic. I mean, the way his friends describe him is that he was everybody's best friend. And he was that type of person who, when they had trouble and they had issues, they always leaned on Courtney to motivate them, to help them, to get through the day. He would send out uh, frequent daily messages of motivation to his team, as well as also uh, his friends and family, just to always tell us to stay positive, that we could do anything we wanted to. And he believed in us. He was like everybody's little hype man. And I, I learned so much more about what he was doing after his passing. I found out that he was actually uh, helping the homeless. He was helping single moms. He was doing all this. And I, I used to always tell Courtney, you're always running the streets. You, you, you need to sit down. He's like, mama, I'm out here changing lives. And you know what, Jeremy? He actually was. He was impacting every life that he could touch. And that was hmm. my son. You know, and he also, he also, uh, he was working in uh, sales. We don't need to get into the whole, you know, knickknack of what he was doing and what company he was working for. But he he became so good at his job that he ended up uh, getting as kind of a, a partial reward for his work the opportunity to lease a uh, a really nice car, uh, which becomes a, a part of this story. So maybe just talk a little bit about how he ended up with the car that he uh, had the night that he was killed. Well, you know, Courtney worked day in, day out, trying to reach his goal. His goal was actually when he was uh, killed, it was for him to become a marketing director in the travel business that he was in. And he was, you know, pushing sales. He was showing travel parties. He was going out every day, exposing, trying to get people to uh, enter into the travel business that he was in. And because of that, he had earned what they call a wheels and car bonus, where they actually sent him money to help pay for his monthly note for this vehicle. And he said for him, that was validation. That was something um, when he earned that that BMW bonus, he was like, this means I can make it. And he would always say to us that this wasn't about only him, but this was about him helping his whole entire family. He said his, his, he would say his dream 
is that all of us are financially free and that he his goal was just to take care of his family. We were his reason why that he would get up every day and day out to uh, to go and expose and try to reach these goals in, in the travel business. And he was doing it. He was on his way. He was one of the top sellers in the business. And he was he was young. You know, he was 22. So for him to have all that ambition and drive, I mean, when when he died, it actually sucked the life out of a lot of team members. And because mm. it was, they were just that devastated with the loss. Now, Shapurl, uh share with people how you learned that your uh, your son had been involved in an incident and was, uh, you know, potentially in a life threatening situation. Uh, just walk us through what happened as you experienced it. Yes, as as we detail in the podcast, somebody. We do know that um, we heard we first heard the news about something happening to Courtney um, around 2 a.m. Uh, we received a knock at our door from the Cicero Police Department and they came to my door and asked me, do I know a Courtney Copeland? And I remember as soon as he said that, my heart just dropped because, you know, police don't come to your door. And so I thought that was odd I thought it was serious and I told him yes and then they said well we come to tell you that you need to call the hospital so in my mind I'm thinking oh my goodness he's been in a traffic accident he he was texting and driving this is what happened to him so once we get to the hospital uh, you know we tell them that we're here to see Courtney Copeland and they tell us we need to go into the family room and when she, when the nurse told us that we need to go into the family room. At that moment, I was sure that my son had passed away. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, I'm not going into that family room. I'm not doing it. I want to see my son. And for me, that's when the actual quest started for me because I even had to fight to see my son that night because police had already cut us off and said, don't let anybody in that room. And I'm like, no, I'm going to see my son. And so I knew at that moment that this whole thing was going to be different for me. I didn't know how I was going to react. Parts of me did want to shut down, but I knew that I needed to know what happened to him that night. Mm. Now, in a moment, I want to um, I want to ask Allison Flowers to talk about the Invisible Institute and um, and how you you all ended up working together on this investigation. But before we do that, picking up on where you are right now uh, in the in the story of what happened, Shapiro, uh, let, let's let's listen to uh, part of the podcast where where you kind of describe why you all decided to name this podcast somebody. And so every black person in this country must rise up and say, I'm somebody. I have a rich, proud, and noble history, however painful and exploited it has been. Black people have always had to say it out loud. I am somebody. Because the people in charge keep telling us we're not. I am black, but I'm black and beautiful. This is something Dr. Martin Luther King used to say in front of crowds. And Reverend Jesse Jackson has carried on the tradition. Somebody. 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 
That's from an early episode of somebody. And while we are having this discussion, I really encourage people to go on your uh, smart device or however you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button uh, to somebody. You are not going to regret it. This is an incredibly important work of investigative journalism. And uh, as you'll hear throughout the podcast and also this conversation, um, Shapiro is uh, has emerged as a journalist. And I and and I, I don't want to spoil too much of. Uh, of, of what people are going to hear, but it's 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 like watching a, a master class in how to do an investigative uh, podcast, uh, but also knowing that what she's investigating is the murder of her son uh, raises the stakes so much more, and you just immediately are thrown into this investigation. And and part of that is due to the work of Allison Flowers and the team at the Invisible Institute. Allison, before we talk specifically about your role in this project. Give people a brief overview of the kind of work that the Invisible Institute does in Chicago and elsewhere. Yeah, we are a journalism-based production company on the south side of Chicago. Um, we do investigative journalism, just like you said, uh, across multimedia, including this podcast. Uh, we participated in the documentary 16 Shots. Uh, the two things that we're probably best known for uh, would be our founder, Jamie Kelvin, and his work in the Laquan McDonald case. He uncovered the truth behind the police execution of Laquan McDonald, uh, who here in Chicago was shot 16 times front and back. Uh, and then we're also known for something called the Citizens Police Data Project, which is a warehouse of police disciplinary records here in Chicago. And these types of records used to not be public in Illinois, and they're still not public in many states. Uh, but again, our founder and executive director, Jamie Kelvin, sued to make them public in Illinois. And so we built this uh, really impressive database that has almost a quarter million misconduct complaints for Chicago police officers and uh, many data findings and uh, analyses that you can uh, dive, dive into in the, in the database. Um, but we, we recently, you know, with this podcast, um, you know, the reason why we wanted to do this with Shapiro at the center of it and as the host was she came to us with so many questions, but she also came to us with these extraordinary audio recordings, these voice diaries of herself. Um, and as you'll probably speak to later, these, uh, these recordings with police as well. So we decided to not only plunge into it with the investigative journalism, but to produce it as a podcast series as well. Now, Shapiro, let's let's go back to where you left off. So you you have discovered in the hospital that your son uh, has died. What was the initial explanation given to you for the circumstances uh, uh, under which he was killed? So it took us about, uh, I would say, about 45 minutes to an hour to actually find that answer. So the doctor comes in and they tell us that our son had passed away. And then he says that he's been shot. And I remember my whole entire family dropping to their knees, screaming, like, what do you mean? Who shot him? Who shot him? And so that was the least thing that was, you know, that was the furthest thing from our mind that Courtney would be shocked. We, I thought for sure they were going to tell me that he was in some terrible car accident and this is how he died. And so I was like, oh my God, you know, almost instantly, I was like, what happened to my son? 
And then uh, after they did allow us to uh, say our final goodbyes to Courtney, after, uh, you know, they uh, had the police detectives there waiting for us. And so when I go into the room, I felt like I was being interrogated at this point by the police because the first question they asked me was, who was the owner of the BMW? And so I said, well, you know, Courtney, it's Courtney's car, but he did have a co-signer on the vehicle. His name is Christian Hernandez. And I gave them the information. But when they said that to me, I grew suspicious. And I was like, well, well, maybe this was a traffic accident gone wrong. Maybe they thought that, you know, Courtney had stolen the car. And maybe this is how this whole incident transpired. Now, um, I, I want to uh, play a, a, a little bit more uh, tape from the uh, the series, but but I think we need a little bit of a of a, a setup for this. So, Shapiro, I uh, because we don't have an enormous amount of time, I'll cut through some of the 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 context for this and say that uh, you had been a longtime listener to the radio show of Santita Jackson. She is the daughter of the Reverend. Jesse Jackson, and they co-host that show sometimes, and Santita hosts it sometimes on her own. And you had called into that show, and you, uh, you know, you 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 viewed her as an institution in the community, and you had started communicating uh, with her uh, about your, the case of your son, and she had uh, encouraged you uh, to make sure that you're really careful in documenting all of your interactions with. Uh, with people, particularly those in authority, as you started trying to ask questions about what happened to your son. Um, and you actually were able to uh, record some of your interactions with the Chicago police. And, you know, one of the disclaimers that you'll hear um, uh, on this podcast is that, you know, the Chicago police have not been uh, implicated in the murder of Courtney Copeland. Um, and we need to state that for the, the record. Um, at the same time, facts will speak for themselves and people can listen and make their own judgments about how they believe the Chicago police handled this and whether it was right or wrong. Um, but let's let's hear a little bit of your interaction with the Chicago police detectives as you start asking them questions. And people may have seen me tweeting about this earlier today. My blood was boiling when I listened to this uh, section of the, the podcast. And also I stood in awe of your temerity and spine, Chaperl. So let, let's, let's hear some of your interaction with the detectives who are supposed to be investigating your son's murder. You, you, well, you could spit on the floor when you see me. It's still not going to affect me from, from, from working. I'm doing your job. And, and oh, if you, if, whether we never talk again or, or we become good, it doesn't matter one way or another to me. If, if something good comes that I, I'm able to, to pick up and run with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with it, with, with your son's murder. And whether you, you thank me or tell me to get fucked at the end of all of this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't oh, matter. No, I'm definitely going to thank you because that's my goal. Yeah, well, I want to know why my twenty-two-year-old well, son was murdered. Well, so do I. Yeah, so yeah. do I. For no apparent reason. So do I. But it, it, as far as this whole black, brown, green shit, no, it doesn't I'm matter. Saying, to me. I so. said you can't discount the history of what no. happened. So, Allison, we um, we we hear Shapiro, and there's there's much more of that, and I uh, I, I really encourage people to to listen to this series. Um, Allison, given that you work at, with the Invisible Institute, and you you often 
uh, go up against the police. Sometimes the police, you know, will give you information that helps an investigation, but oftentimes you guys are uh, have an adversarial journalistic relationship. Put this in context for for people, the kinds of uh, interactions that Shapiro had with Chicago police detectives. And is it unusual to have a a woman whose son was killed? Uh, just sticking to her principles and refusing to take go away for an answer. Right. Well, when I first heard these recordings, I was really shocked by the way the police treated her. Um, you, know, you you typically don't get to to hear these sorts of recordings. Uh, you know, to hear detectives uh, in the course of their work and their interactions with the public. Um, and then I was just you know really disgusted by the way they were talking to. Uh, a grieving mom. And I don't want to give away too much, but we do end up, uh, Shapiro and I, talking to the same detectives again. Uh, we weren't able to record that particular conversation, um, which they stipulated. They, they've also said that they knew she was recording, which makes, I think, their uh, behavior even more appalling that if they thought they were being recorded, that this is still how they would talk to Shapiro. Um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to highlight in this series was not just the way Courtney was treated by Chicago police in his final moments and, and the disregard for him, uh, but also how the detectives talked to Shapiro, how they treated her. And when Shapiro and I meet with these detectives again in the next episode, the way they talk to me and the way they talk to Shapiro, you know, I've heard these recordings several times and it was, you know, obviously they treated me very differently than they, than they treated Shapiro. Hmm. No, Shapiro, I, I, I think it's important to, uh, for people who don't know anything about this case to also explain why the role of the police, uh, certainly at the beginning of the of the podcast series, is is such an important part of the investigation. Where was Courtney discovered when he was shot? Well, Courtney, the location where Courtney was uh, shot was actually right around the corner, literally from uh, a police station. So after he was shot, he drove himself to the police station and he flagged down uh, uh, a cop, uh, Officer Block, he, he uh, flagged him down and he told him that he had been shot. And so as the narrative came out about that interaction with Officer Block, Officer Block told uh, Courtney jumped out of his BMW ran over to Block, grabbed his hand and said, I've been shot. Block told him, hey, your car is still moving to go back and put his car in park. So Courtney runs back to the car, put the car in park, runs back to Officer Block, grabs his arm again and said, I've been shot and collapsed. That was the narrative that the police gave to us. We have an image uh, that I, I just want to put on the screen for people as you're describing this. There, there, were, there were some cameras that captured parts of what uh, took place in what you're describing. And we, I just want to show the image of this is uh, a, a screenshot of Courtney reaching up from the ground uh, as, as the uh, police officers are on the scene there. T talk, talk about what we're looking at here, Shapiro. Well, first of all, Jeremy, it took us almost a year and a half to actually get this particular footage. This is what was driving me every day, day in, day out, because I knew my son 
would have said something to Chicago police. The, the narrative that the police gave us was that Courtney never said a word. He never said anything. So when we got the video, it was clear to us that he was speaking. He was talking in certain parts of the video. He's, he looks like he's looking up to them, answering questions. So he was interacting and he was very um, alert. And parts of the reports that we see, they say he's he's alert, walking around at the scene. So my thing is that my son had a lot of energy to go back and forth, park his car, do all this stuff, even though he was injured. To me, it means that his injury was survivable. So in this particular shot that we're looking at right now, this is at the point that Courtney is begging the police for help. He's reaching up to him you can't because it's a, a closed frame. Uh, but he's surrounded by about eight to 10 cops at this point. And they're all in front of him. And he's looking up, begging, trying to get some help to get to his knees. So as the video actually uh, goes forward, they finally pick him up and throw him onto the stretcher. And so me seeing this, this was probably the hardest moment of my life. Because mm -hmm. I, I know my son. I know my son was fearful. I know my son was scared. He it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Know what was happening. And then to find out that they later handcuffed him, it was just all too much for me. This scene here broke my heart because all he wanted was somebody. The, the place where he was trying to get help was at the police. And, and to me, they just mistreated him. You 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 just dropped a very uh, uh, a very important piece of information there, Shapiro. And I want to ask Allison to uh, to pick up on that and explain. We we we're going to listen to in a, in a moment. We're going to listen to a nurse in the emergency room that you were able to speak to uh, who saw uh, uh, Courtney that uh, that evening um, and 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 some of what she was able to tell you. But Allison, just first briefly. Explain how the police initially responded to this, some of the inconsistencies and, and confusion around this case and how they dealt with Shapurl and her family. Right. So, you know, detectives initially told Shapurl that Courtney uh, collapsed and didn't tell them anything. Later, we hear on the dispatch that he's sharing his name, his, da his date of birth, and, you know, probably could have given some information about his shooters. Um, then Chaparral, uh asks for the names of the on-scene officers in her very first encounter with police and, and conversation. 
and they won't give her the names. That's public information. They should have given her the names right then and there when she asked. She asks for the video footage that they're uh, that they obtain, and they wouldn't share that with her. She makes a formal request to the city. They won't release that to her either. And so she's thinking, well, you know, she lives in Chicago where force against young black men by police is used 14 times more than white, their white counterparts. And so, you know, she had uh, every right to be suspicious, uh, especially as they were clearly withholding information. She gets the car back. There's no blood in the car. And then she goes to pick up some medical records at the hospital, which included a really important report, which was the paramedics report. And in that report, it notes that Courtney was handcuffed and that he, they, in the commentary, uh, put that he was violent and combative. And again, detectives had told her that he collapsed, was immobile, and wasn't even talking. So, you know, again, in her mind, it's like, well, when did he become violent and combative to the point that he needed to be handcuffed. They're also asking her, was he the owner of the BMW of the car that he was driving, which also ignited her suspicions around the police in this case. Um, but it was that paramedics report that she came upon by herself by virtue of pulling records, which again is, is what uh, you know a journalist would do in this case is you pull as many records as you can in primary source documents. That's what Shapiro Wells did immediately and then learned that he was handcuffed. And then there was a really uh, fortuitous moment where she crossed paths with the emergency room nurse who had cared for Courtney and comforted Shapurl after she learned of her son's death. And right the same morning that she gets the paramedics report telling her that her son was handcuffed, which is a huge, huge bombshell, she goes and gets breakfast with her husband to calm down. And there in the restaurant is the ER nurse who witnessed him being handcuffed. And let's let's actually listen to that. This is uh, from uh, episode three of the Somebody podcast where Shapurl is talking to the ER nurse who cared for Courtney and witnessed him coming into the ER handcuffed to the bed just before he died. Here it is. I remember him specifically being handcuffed to the bed. And so we were like, okay, where's the police? We need these handcuffs off. Um, and then maybe, maybe like about, I say about a minute, the police walked in and they took off the, they, you know, took off the handcuffs. Nurse Hawkins said when she first saw Courtney, his right hand was handcuffed to the stretcher, which was a problem because they needed to transfer him to a hospital bed so they can work on him, and they couldn't. And Yeah, it was different. I don't remember ever seeing any other gunshot victims come in handcuffed. That clip is from episode three of the series. And again, if you are, uh, if you're watching this conversation, make sure to go and subscribe to the Somebody podcast. It's in the midst of, uh, of its production. You can catch up in time for uh, the final two episodes of it. It's a seven episode series. Shapurl, uh, talk about when you, uh, when you discovered that your son had in fact been handcuffed to the bed and then you confront the police uh, with that information, what did the police say to you? How did they treat you when you came back and told them that? Oh, let me tell you, that was some scene when I had to deal with them about my son being handcuffed. Because till today, this very day, 
Chicago police still denies the fact that they handcuffed my son. They still lie about that fact that my son was handcuffed, even though their documents, they keep on trying to say, oh, it's CFD documents, it's Chicago Fire Department documents. I said, sir, the nurse also verified that he was handcuffed. The records say he was handcuffed. And they say, well, we didn't handcuff him. Well, who handcuffed him? No one still wants to admit that discretion that they did to my son. And to me, that was egregious behavior. I have no doubt in my mind that when they put those handcuffs on my son, he was just frightened out of his mind. And that is the image that continues to play in my mind day in, day out, is that his final moments, his mama wasn't there to help him. I wasn't there to help him. You know, I'm sure that he was confused. He was gasping for breath. He was, you know, bleeding internally and you're being handcuffed. What 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 could he be thinking in that moment? You know, as a as a black parent, we always teach our children how to interact with the uh, police to have this, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Be very calm. Don't move. And even though he did everything right, he was still a suspect before he was a victim. And that's how I feel about it. You know, Allison, um, as as people listen to this, as I listen to it also, you know, when you when you hear Shapiro and and her composition and uh, how she is able to maintain her cool while the police are not maintaining theirs, they're incredibly defensive. They uh, they go ballistic when uh, Shapiro states some very well documented truths about the conduct of some of the Chicago police force and some of their scandals uh, and and some of the police killings that have happened in Chicago. Um, and, and it's really, it's remarkable to hear it. And the fact that Shapiro was able to record it means that history can't only be written by the police. Um, but there are a number of questions in this specific case uh, that are raised in your podcast that stem from the police not appearing to do their job. There were 911 calls from people. There were witnesses, some of whom we discover are actually incredibly credible uh, people. We don't want to give too much away. That there, uh, that there were people that saw things, that saw vehicles, that uh, that were able to give descriptions. Talk about the the suspicion that uh, the police, their own conduct, raises in the mind of just anyone who is presented with the facts in this case. Um, because if you want to say, well, the police had nothing to do with this. Uh, and then you listen to the police, you say, well, wait a minute, why, if the police had nothing to do with this, either in, in terms of incompetence or uh, malfeasance or worse, why did they do several of the things they did or not do a bunch of things that they didn't do that you would normally do in an investigation, Allison? Right. Well, the thing is, we're not just looking at police accountability um, through the lens of, you know, were they responsible for Courtney's death or were they not uh, we're also looking at police accountability through the way that homicide investigations are conducted and whose cases are being prioritized and whose lives uh, and murders uh, are, are most important in solving. And, you know, we had some some recent uh, findings here in Chicago uh, a few months ago where, uh, you know, six out of 10 murders in Chicago are going unsolved, but 
it's even lower if you're a black Chicagoan. So I, I think it's less than 22% of those cases. And so, you know, that is why moms like Shapiro feel like they have to mobilize. And Shapiro was able to, to do that as we, you know, so extraordinarily see in this story. Um, but to have to take that on herself, you know, the police file in this case is very thin. It's not that they didn't do any work. They did go around the neighborhood looking for some, uh, you know, security footage from some neighbors, but they documented interviews with a handful of people. And we talked to dozens of people. And that's really what it took to get to the bottom of this case. There are still a lot of unknowns, but we ended up having to do what the police wouldn't do. And that is, you know, find new witnesses and return a compelling list of, of suspects in this case. I mean, I don't want to over argue what Chaparral has done here uh, with, with our team at Invisible Institute. But, um, you know, I, I would hope some other agencies other than the police department follow up on the leads provided in this podcast. Uh, you know, Chaparral, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, and one of the things that I, I, I confronted them about was why didn't they investigate what the police wrote down in their notes? And they were like highly offended that. So you want us to reinvestigate the police? And I told them, absolutely, because people make mistakes. Everyone is human. And this is my child. I want to make sure that you have dotted your I's and crossed all of your T's. And my thing is that I see, when I look at the file, all I see is a whole bunch of copying and paste. You have a whole bunch of files that are identical and they are it's nothing it's very limited as what they actually did other than try to pull footage and i feel like i tell people all the time you know that show 48 hours if chicago doesn't sign uh file your case in in 48 hours then you're a cold case you they give you 48 hours to actually work on your case and that's basically what they did the first 48 hours they hit the streets they looked talked to a few people and then after that, the next report is the ballistic report. So for months, there was nothing being done on his case. And to this date, I've only talked to them three or four times since my son has been murdered. So all the investigation that has gone on about finding Courtney Killer has been on me and the Invisible Institute. Chicago police has virtually done nothing. You know, I, I also uh, one uh, aspect of this series that is is really remarkable, and I think it's it's um, it really drives home the power of you being the investigator, Shapiro, and and being so invested in it in a way that no journalist, outside journalist, could be because it's literally trying to solve uh, the the mystery of the murder of your son, um, and and you were able to find witnesses and individuals who actually did see relevant uh, activities, who actually did try to reach out to the police. And in fact, because you were able to uh, record the police in some of your early interactions, when they later tried to gaslight you and say, oh, no, 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 you never told us that, you had recorded it. And, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to play cute here and say, I don't wanna give away the ending. I want people to listen to this, but there is a remarkable twist in the story that is produced because of your investigation. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with people what it has been like to uh, to operate with the two hats you've had to wear in this, which is 
mother who wants justice for her son and wants to make sure this doesn't happen to any other families, but then also becoming an investigator doing a job that the police should do and that journalists, thankfully, teamed up with you to do, but being a journalist and a mother investigating her son's murder at the same time. Well, I would say that first, no mother should have to endure what I had to endure. Um, this is probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to experience in my life. For the last four years, this has been a labor of love because I felt that more than anything, since my son was by himself that night, that we deserve to know what happened, what truly happened to him that night. And so it was, it was the driving force of getting those answers for Courtney, because I know if he could have called his mama, he would have. I know if the, the situation was different, he would have told whoever he could everything he knew about who murdered him. So because the opportunity was stolen from him, it was up to me. That burden was on me. So that was my driving force to continue to push the buttons. When the doors were slamming in my face, I was like, I don't care. Courtney deserves to know for us to know what happened that night. And so that was a driving force that kept me going and kept me seeking the truth. And so like I tell people, you know, I can't say that I fully grieve for my son at this time because I'm still still trying to uncover and and trying to find out exactly what happened because we still have some missing pieces here. We still have some missing pieces that we need answers to. But in the investigation, as you will see in episodes six and seven, we found those that information out on day three after murder, after he was murdered. So it's just the process that the CPD does in investigating these murders are, is inadequate. And that's what this podcast also uncovers, that there has to be more um, emphasis. There has to be more um, dedication to solving these murders. We have too many in Chicago. We have thousands of unsolved murders. Like Allison was saying, our murder solve rate is like 22%. In, the, in a big city like Chicago, it's unheard of. And so we have to do more to push CPD to do what's right. Because there are a lot of parents that are like me that are hurting because we have no answers. And I'm still waiting for them to give justice for Courtney. Now, I want to play one uh, final clip before we uh, we wrap up this uh, this discussion, and and it takes place uh, when you, Chaperle, drive with the team from the Invisible Institute. You drive uh, Courtney's car to the same intersection outside the police station where he pulled up for help after being shot and was handcuffed by the police, and you you were there to stage a vigil and a protest on the second anniversary. Uh, of his death and the police actually approach you that night uh, and tell you you have to leave. And the on-scene supervisor from the night that Courtney was murdered actually shows up and you have a interaction with him as you are beside yourself with grief. Here is that clip from the latest available episode, episode five. 
I'm not moving. Leave me alone. I am not moving it. No, no. I am not moving it. I'm staying right here. Leave me alone, please. Leave me alone. I'm not. 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 I'm he said he was shot. What else did he say? Said, y'all were talking to him. Y'all were talking to him. He was talking to y'all on the camera. What did you say? What did he say? He said he was shot. And then the ambulance came here and started taking care of him. You know, Shapiro, Allison, we've, we've had people uh, who are watching this broadcast commenting, and I just want to share some of the comments that have been coming in. Um, Someone wrote, we're all crying and heartbroken with you, Shapiro. Um, a real glimpse of how detectives treat grieving mothers in Chicago. Uh, another parent writing in, watching with my 10-year-old who is studying Black Lives Matter and remote learning. Thank you for this. Uh, another one, I cannot imagine how painful this must be to relive by describing, but your fortitude will prevail. And just uh, this moment, condolences, respect, and gratitude to Shapiro for sharing her loss with such eloquence and power in somebody and for dedication to her son and people. Thank you so much. So as, Thank you so much. In, as, as, as we wrap up this uh, discussion, um, Allison and Shapiro, I want to give both of you an opportunity for uh, some closing thoughts on this. Um, Allison, we can uh, begin with you. Uh, I, I'm curious if you uh, have ever met anyone like Shapiro uh, who seemed to be destined to do journalism uh, in, in, in a way, but but was forced into it by circumstances of life and, and death. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've done, I've worked on a lot of stories where trauma is, uh, is you know, the animating force, if you will. And uh, while I've met a lot of really wonderful people over the course of my career, no one is like Shapiro Wells. And, you know, I also will note that this was the first time I had ever investigated a case like this, um, you know, alongside someone uh, where they really participated in the investigation. And I was also a new mom uh, when I met Shapiro. Uh, you know, my son was just a few months old. He's now three and a half. And um, I just had a baby two months ago. <laughs> Um, so to, I, I really looked at this case differently as a parent, um, not just as a journalist. And so that's what really kept me going with Shapiro, you know, our obsessive, uh, messages to each other in the middle of the night. And, uh, we even had some similar dreams. <laughs> so, um, no, my life has changed forever because of Shapiro Wells. Shapiro, um, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the 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 final word here outside of just uh, telling people where to get the show. So I, I hand it off to you for closing remarks on uh, on this journey that you're on and that we hope people will go on with you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I, I definitely want to say that, you know, our work continues. Uh, we still have to find justice for Courtney Copeland. We still are investigating this case. So we're asking anyone, if anybody knows anything that can help us, please reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, we also have a, a website now, which is called Copeland Memorial, www.copelandmemorial.com. 
we can be reached. And you know, I have ta- I have turned my pain into a passion. One of the things that we did notice uh, that Courtney was doing was a lot of charity work. So we have created uh, the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation in his honor to help our community and to help single moms. And we've been doing a lot of work. And so we ask that you help us to further this dream that Courtney always had of helping America and making it a better place for everyone. And so I just appreciate this opportunity. I encourage everybody to log on to somebody and take a listen. And I think that this is something that will uh, change your life. Well, Allison Flowers and Shapiro Wells, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this uh, story with us um, and and for all of the incredibly important work you've done to get justice for your son, Shapiro. Um, I, I, I stand in awe of you. And I, um, you know, I just from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of everyone at The Intercept, we're so proud to have been able to uh, support this work. And, um, you know, we... Uh, we, we all stand in awe and admiration of you, Shapiro, and what you, what you stand for and what you've done. Thank you so much. I, ho- I hope that everybody uh, goes to wherever they get their podcasts. It's, uh, it's, it is uh, simply called Somebody. Um, it also, for younger people or hip-hop fans, uh, you, you do get to hear from Chance the Rapper in this. He was one of Courtney's uh, friends. He also generously provided the uh, the music, the production values of this podcast also are just, uh, you know, incredible. And it really is, uh, it, it is a gripping story uh, that comes with the added benefit of uh, of hearing a person like Shapiro work with an institution like the Invisible Institute, which does vital work, and know that you may be able to help in some way. Uh, if you're in Chicago, maybe you saw something, um, or perhaps you know of other cases uh, where uh, the activities of the police have been questionable, or this will spur you to speak up about something that you witnessed that you haven't said anything about. You'll hear stories from people in this podcast who wish they would have said something earlier or wish that someone would have listened to them when they did speak up. So uh, we encourage you to go to wherever you get your podcast. Look for the Somebody podcast. All f- The first five episodes are all available. Uh, I want to thank everyone uh, for being with us. Thank you to our audience who tuned in uh, for this. Let your friends know it's also going to be online uh, if they missed it. And um, you know, this is a conversation I think that would be important also to share with students uh, as we, we had some people watching with their children. If your students are, are studying social justice or they want to be inspired by someone like Shapiro who took matters into her own hands and refused to uh, take no for an answer or no answer for an answer, um, it, it really could inspire them. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our partners in this podcast. Check it out, Somebody Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.